All right, if you're new or visiting, we're in a series on the book of James called Shoe Leather Wisdom. And we're in chapter 5, and so uh, you're jumping in kind of new. You're in midstream, but join us and uh, let's take a look. We're going to do a, a brief review from just last week because uh, the passage from last week ties to this week as well. So we're in James chapter 4, and it says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And then James raises this question, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is just arguing for context here. Uh, Know who you are. Keep in mind who God is. And and measure it out the right way. He says... uh, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. So last week, what we said in review about this passage was that this passage is not talking about or advocating that one shouldn't plan for the future. It is not saying that. Second thing, it's not talking about that it's inherently wrong or bad to be in business. Business is created by God, and God knows business, so it's not talking about that. Third thing, it's not saying it's wrong to make a profit. What it is saying is this. It's arrogant to think you control the future. That's what James is pointing out. And we tend to operate that way really quickly, don't we? It's my time, my future, my plan. Oh yeah, God, I should pray maybe. James is saying it's arrogant to think you control the future. And second, boasting about what you're going to do or what you've accomplished or how much you've made is also arrogant and evil. Um, we, talk, we would say we get full of ourselves, right? Or we get big britches or we strut our stuff or there's a number of phrases in our culture that uh, just let others know how bad a dude I am and you should be impressed. And God's saying not so much. Right? That's what James is pointing out. And James is saying, now if you know you're supposed to be humble, if you know you should give honor, but you don't, then this is sin to you. It's wrong. And so the culmination of that is that a Christian should know and honor God by expressing humility and acknowledging that everything they have is because of and from God. And even when we've done well, most of the time it's because God either blessed or we had enough brains to cooperate. Right? And so, Scripture's talking about having an appropriate humility of considering who we are and then considering God is. We sang that song this morning, ten thousands of ten thousand swirling the throne and who's really at the center of all this. And Scripture says we have a subtle temptation to steal God's glory from Him, to make it our glory instead of His glory. Uh, It's a simple way to put it. James is pointing out that it's easy for Christians to fall into this trap of pride. I know you never have, but others have. And so James is talking to them. And um, this passage is written to Christians who were were failing to course correct in this particular area. So in other words, this isn't hypothetical. This isn't theoretical. This was an actual group of Christians that actually started stumbling this way and James is trying to course correct the pattern. 
And uh, James, in no uncertain terms, is pointing it out to them and expecting them to repent. You get that in the passage? I'm not asking your permission. I'm not asking your favor. I'm expecting you to recognize that and repent. Change your attitude on it because the way you're operating is wrong. And what James is saying is that if they don't move away from this kind of arrogance, what he's warning them is that a worse evil will befall them. Right? And so we're going to look at that this morning. So would you join me in prayer and then we'll, we'll go. Lord, uh, I am guilty of being an arrogant man. I can look over my history and think of times where I brought, bragged and boasted and uh, things I've accomplished or even uh, colored and shaded things I hadn't accomplished because I wanted to look bigger than I really was. And I know that others can identify with that. And this passage smacks right in the heart of that and talks about actually having a, a, a really humble heart. You've taught me a lot about that over the years. I've come a long ways, probably have a lot longer ways to go. But we, we bless you for this and what James wrote and ask that it would be for our help. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right, so let's move into chapter 5 then. So chapter 5 takes us onto this topic. It's kind of an extension from the passage we just read. And it says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's a delightful way to start the morning, right? Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James really never got the memo about being secret sensitive. <laughs> right? And so he was of the old school uh, calling it for what it was and calling a spade a spade. And he was calling out this group of people uh, in this context. So the picture here is of rich people who have gotten rich and they're hoarding. Um, They have so much stuff they can't use it all. Look at the... Look at the description here. Your riches are right. Your garments are moth-eaten. Gold and silver have corroded. And the corrosion will be evidence against you. In other words, um, there's so much stuff. It's sitting around and, and rusting out. It's, it's falling apart. It's corroding. We call them storage units in America. In case you didn't get the point. James says that their greediness will be a source of judgment against them in the last days. Now, at first glance, when we look at this in fairness to this passage, it looks like it's saying that all rich people are evil and headed for destruction in the last days. Right? And it's passages like these that have set whole movements in motion. Uh, you come into early church history, you read about the vows of poverty, and actually James falls into that camp, and you can see his reaction uh, is thus. Uh, the Desert Father, St. Francis of Assisi, just to mention a few. Right, But there's a little more to it, though. This passage, along with many others, really shows the importance of reading the whole passage in its context. The following verses bring clarity to what James is trying to point out, and he grabs their attention with the word behold. Behold is get it, look, check this out. Make sure you understand the connection. So what's James saying we should behold? He says, behold... The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. 
You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So James is connecting those two passages, and that behold gives us the connecting piece that brings insight into this passage that James is working with here. It isn't that these people have riches. That is so much the issue. But rather, how they've acquired them. It's how they went about getting those riches that James and the Lord are finding fault with. So the question is, how did they acquire their wealth? James says it was through fraud. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. In other words, they defrauded the actual honest wages that the people who did the work for them were entitled to. Now, this is an agrarian society, right? This is a, this is a farming community. This is not high-tech America, this is not Microsoft, this is not Amazon, this is not any of those kind of situations. And so um, we would say, well, it doesn't apply today. Does defrauding in the workplace still happen today? Right? It's not gone out of style. Right? So, um, but in this, two classes of people are singled out. The first one are the laborers. Laborers were usually the people that did all the uh, setup work Uh, They're the people who work the land, they plow it, they plant it, they care for it. Uh, They make sure that everything's set for when the harvest comes. And then when the harvest comes, there's another group of people that come in called the harvesters. And uh, they're people who come in the fall and they literally bring in the harvest. So you have those who would include uh, what we call pickers, right? If it's figs or apples or cherries, they come through. Uh, We're familiar with apple orchards in the Northwest and we know how that works over in eastern Washington. They come through and they pick the fruit off the trees. Or it would be the cutters, uh, the, the old size. Do you remember those? Where the big, right? The old guys in Wisconsin still used those things back in the day on the corners of the field. And it was magical to watch them work that stuff. And um, then you had gathers and stackers. Right? If you think of wheat, right? They were bundled and then uh, stacked in sh- uh, shares of wheat, right? And then you had the wagon haulers and then the sorters, right? You had to beat the wheat and separate the wheat from the chaff and all that kind of stuff. And so James is talking about these people who have gotten rich off of the land and the way they've gotten rich off the land is they brought all the crops in and stuff, but they have figured out a way to defraud the workers of their wages. And if you've ever been defrauded of wages, you know what that feels like. When you, wait a minute, that isn't what we agreed to, right? And James uh, is saying, the, basically, if you're talking defrauding, the owner lied. He had the money, but he schemed how to, how to get the, the work hired out and then wouldn't pay and came up with maybe a thousand excuses why he couldn't pay. And in this method, primarily what it's designed to do is line his pockets. What we mean by that is he's going to get rich off of this scheme. He's going to be able to get the house he wants. He's going to be able to get the horse or the mule that he wants. Today we call it a car or truck. He's going to be able to get, you know, to go to vacation down on the Mediterranean during the hot season. He's going to be able to get all the stuff he wants. 
And so he's doing this so that he can line his pockets. But James brings up a point here is that those who got defrauded have cried out to God. And God actually heard their cry. And he said, you don't understand something. God has heard their cry and now it's God who's against you, not the workers. James, and James makes no bones about it when he says, your riches will rot. Okay? Um, this echoes Jesus' words in Mark 8.36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is a very uh, popular theme, by the way, in movies. Right? If you watch a, a number of movies, it's about people who acquire all this kind of wealth illicitly through uh, cheating and defrauding and, and ripping people off, and in the end, they lose it all. Right? And, and we know stories of that uh, that have played out historically. So this isn't uh, out there somewhere. Now, in our, our era, we have several sayings that are truisms, which really aren't true at all. I was thinking about this in, in our context. For example, one, one thing that we say uh, often, you'll hear somebody say, all's fair in love and war. Heard that saying? When you think about it, that's not true for either one. It's not fair in war and it's not fair in love. Nobody sits around and goes, all's fair in love. Okay, well, it's all fine then. They, they, trust me, they show up in my office. It's not all fine. Okay? It's not a good deal. And they got ripped off and they're crying out to God and God is going to hear those prayers. Another one in our culture that you hear often is just business. Anybody ever heard that one before? It's just business. And the idea behind the second thing is that business is above the moral code that says one has to operate ethically. Well, you don't understand. It's just business. That's how business works. Some shadiness goes on, but it's just business. Some under the table goes on. What? Right? That's just business. An owner isn't straight up or fair with their employees. Well, that's just business. It's the price of doing business. And that isn't even all in this passage. James says there's actually a much darker side to this whole setup and that they've actually committed murder to get what they wanted. We would... We would think of films like The Godfather. You come to me on my daughter's wedding day. Oh, right? They've actually condemned, and you've just given your ages away, by the way, (laughs) just condemned and murdered the righteous man. They've actually become so self-centered that they got to the point of murdering. Right? Now, can that be true? Yeah, there's all kinds of ways that happens. James cuts right through the hype of the rhetoric. He says, you murder people so you can stay self-centered and indulgent. My pleasure, my safety, my desires trump everything. It's just business. Now, before we think this is too remote for us to relate to, does anybody remember the sweatshop industries of the 80s and 90s? Remember, we, we got our clothes, we got our shirts, we got our pants, they were all hip and cool, and it never occurred to us that the conditions that those things were made in or the conditions uh, that children were working in till it all got exposed and brought out, right? And that whole industry got turned upside down on its head. But what was it? We, as long as we get our stuff, we really don't care that other people 
are suffering. And so that plays out today as well. We profited as a country greatly at the expense of others. But only later did we realize the price tag others paid for our convenience. Right? And so this is something that James is saying we've got to keep an eye out for. James points out that we should be very afraid if we're cheating, extorting, or abusing those who work for us and we defraud them. This would be primarily to owners, to employers, uh, in this. And Jesus highlights the thought of what James is pointing out in the parable of the rich man in Lazarus that warns us in the same way. Remember that parable? Let's look at it again. This uh, really runs right alongside what James is saying. He said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, which was the symbol of that day of uh, you're at the top of the rung of the ladder, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate we laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now first, note the juxtaposition of the rich man and the poor man and how vastly different their circumstances are. Also note that the poor man would have been happy from what fell from the rich man tables. In other words, it wouldn't have taken much to help. Uh, how we would say it is he would have been happy with just the leftovers. Right? That would have been more than adequate for the guy. If he had been able to eat just the leftovers of what the rich man threw away from his meals, he would have had enough. And there's a very stark line of reality when it says in this passage, the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Suddenly the parable takes a stark contrast. The man suddenly finds himself in a situation he hadn't even imagined because he probably thought he was in right standing. And being in torment. And I just want to say something here. The Bible points out that the fires of hell are very real and should be avoided at all costs. And if you say they're metaphor, I would say this. If that's a metaphor, I don't want to know what the reality is. All right? The Bible talks that all is to avoid the fires of hell. And this man had not done that. The tables are turned. The poor man in torment all his life is now in paradise. And the rich man in paradise all his life is now in torment. It's a classic swap. He now wishes for a morsel, in this case a a dip of water, from Lazarus, just like Lazarus once wished for a morsel from him. And in this situation, the man responds. He says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been fixed, 
in order that those who would pass from here to you may not able, not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The, the idea of a chasm is important here because what Abraham's pointing out to this man is it's fixed. You can't cross over a chasm. If you think about the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been on the edge and looked across and said, what are the odds that I can jump from the south rim to the north rim? And you kind of realize that's just not going to happen. It's fixed, right? Abraham is saying that the gap between heaven and hell, that chasm is also fixed far more than the Grand Canyon. If we can't jump the Grand Canyon, then we're certainly not going to be able to jump that chasm. It's fixed from either side. It's absolutely uncrossable. And going back to James, God is not fooled by man's underhanded tactics. We don't think God is watching, but the witness of Scripture is that God sees everything. That He knows the hearts of men. He knows what we're doing. And Galatians 6, 7, 8 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And Jesus is using this parable to illustrate that point. That God can't be mocked. And the rich man had sowed to his flesh. He had sowed to his selfishness. He had sowed to his uh, self-centeredness. And he got the reward for that. Lazarus obviously had responded to God and he got his reward for that. The problem is the rich man realized it all too late. The Bible says there's a time to respond to God and then comes the judgment. This guy realized it too late and he goes, no, no, no. But he does have a concerning thought because he realizes that his family will end up there with him and so he pleads his case to Abraham and he says this. And he says, I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house for I have five brothers. And he comes from a large family. Okay, I get this. I'm the oldest of eight. My dad came from a family of 15. I know how that works. All right? Cousins by the dozens. He said, I've got five brothers. So that, they, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He would do anything at this moment to keep the people he loves from ending up where he's at because he actually understands what it is now. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. <clears throat> and he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A very autobiographical comment from Jesus. Because he would indeed rise from the dead and no one's listening today either. This setup hits pretty close to home for us. Jesus also gives us the flip side of the issue that James is trying to course correct in another parable where a man does the opposite of what the people James is talking to are doing. We know it as the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus here creates a story that's absolutely profound and very helpful for us in how to respond with what James was trying to counter with this group of Christians. The parable goes like this. You know it well, but we'll read it. It says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by the other side. So also a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Notice the element of compassion is the antivirus to the character flaws of greediness and self-indulgence. Right? If, if you struggle with those, one of the things to pray for is that God would begin to give us a compassion for those that we know or see are hurting. It's a, it's a counteractive. It, it's the opposite of. Jesus is, uses the role of a Samaritan, an outcast, right? This is as outcast as you can get. The Samaritans were not the politically correct people of their era. So he uses a Samaritan to bring into focus the indifference of the priest and the Levite. The priest and the Levite, both are servants in the temple and both servants of the law, and both should be expressing God's love to other people. But they're busy. They don't have time. It interrupts their schedule. They have things to do. That sounds like us. Important note to self. This is to me. Just because you have the right role does not mean you have the right heart. Right? Jesus goes on with the parable. It says this. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Then Jesus says this, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This whole discussion had started off with someone asking, And who's my neighbor? And Jesus gave this story to answer that question. And he said, Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Well, you go and do likewise. Now, I want to pull some things from this that stood out to me that I've not heard other people say before, but they make sense to me. Here's some key points. What the Samaritan did was very practical, right? First thing is he went to him. Second thing, he bound up his wounds. Third thing is he put him on his own ride. He put him on his mule or donkey there. Uh, We would say he put him in our car today kind of thing. And then he put him in an inn. Today, we would probably say urgent care or the emergency room, right? Inns were the places that functioned that way in that day. Notice the second thing. He didn't sell everything he had. The good Samaritan didn't say, oh, there's a bunch of poor people and I'll sell everything I had because it's wrong for me to have wealth or means and I should get rid of everything. You should do that if God asks you to. That's called the vile poverty. But the Samaritan didn't do that. But he did provide out of his own funds. He did say, man, this dude's in bad shape. I could help him out. I'm going to help him out at least to the extent that I can help him out. With that, I I just want to address the issue of street people today as they are proliferating in our area and in um, Seattle especially. Uh, You can't drive anywhere without seeing them. Have you ever wrestled with what you should do? Right? Uh, I just want to say, note in the parable, the, the Samaritan did not give the man money. 
He didn't say, hey, you really beat them, Bruce. Here's some money. Go do what you want with it. And I, I think there's a, a lesson in there for us this morning. He gave it. Who did the Samaritan give it to? He gave it to a responsible agent, the innkeeper. And he said, take care of this person. And if it's not enough, when I come back, I'll, I'll help repay it. The innkeeper was able to provide shelter and food. Um, I think we need to realize this. We are not helping street people when we give them money. Okay? Nine times out of ten, what does that go for? Alcohol or drugs. Okay? But we can give to agents that will be helpful. That's why we here support Everett Gospel Mission because they function as the innkeeper in this area. They are the conduit through which the homeless can go. And so we donate clothes. Uh, we go by the elevator there. There's a whole place where you can donate clothes. And we bring that every week or two and bring that down for them. We have people that go down there. We do go projects with them. Uh, Daniel Markham, who heads up, is a great friend of mine and uh, is helping us connect in better ways with the homeless. But we're, we're, they are the, the innkeepers, so to speak, the change agent in this area. And so... Um, you're far better off to hand a little bag of groceries to them than you are to hand them money. Okay, uh, Be wise in your compassion. Now I want to suggest the Samaritan was wise in his compassion. All right, we can go on for this forever. The, the, script, the topic is all through scriptures, uh, all through Proverbs. Just It's unending. But let's wrap up. Jesus ends up by this, asking the question, of the three, who was the neighbor to this man? And obviously it was the Samaritan. Okay? James is talking about people who were using others for their own gain. They were not being a good neighbor. Okay? James is saying, you're not even being Christian. You're not even being a good neighbor. Forget the Christian part. Let's just get to the neighbor part. Right? And sometimes we forget. We, can we be ollie with our neighbors? Can our neighbors be ollie with us? And we forget about, duh, hello, there's a bigger picture here of I'm supposed to be expressing Christ to my neighbors. How do I do that? Think of some practical ways. James was talking about the, the fact that uh, people were using others for their own gain. And Jesus is talking about flipping the picture about being people who help others. And the question this morning is, which one are you? Which one were you this week? Which one will you be tomorrow? It's a big issue. The man, the rich man, found out too late and didn't want to be where he ended up. That's a great warning for us as well. Let's pray. Father, as we come uh, this morning before you, uh, it's not always uh, fluff and good news and um, balloons and candy wrappers and that kind of stuff. Lord, it's not, life is not all about do I get everything I want. And this is a stark wake-up call to that. Our selfishness knows no ends. And enough is never enough. And there comes a legitimate place where your spirit has to say to us, stop, stop, you don't need that. You could help others. And I just pray on whatever level, Lord, that you are saying and talking to us, I pray you protect us from false guilt. I pray you protect us from accusations from the enemy. But I do pray that we would listen to you through your spirit for what would be a very good practical response in the world that I live in today. And we ask for this in your name. Amen.